You can't talk about Samoan tradition without first starting with number one. And number one is God is everything. In fact, it is in our country's motto, which is Muamua Leatua Meuma, which means God before everything. That's why there's a ton of Polynesians um, who converted to the LDS Church because much of the LDS doctrine and the LDS story it jives. There are parallels because we, you know, the, because of Hagoth. Well, so that's that's to one. Well, that's that's one. Uh, you know, that's one theory. You're allowed to laugh with me when I say because <laughs> sure of, because of Hagoth, right? I mean, I think every white person that knows a Polynesian knows how soft they are when they compare themselves to a Polynesian. If you've got Polynesian friends, you know damn well those friends been they got their asses beat. After playing two years of ball there, I got uh, I earned a scholarship to play at Louisiana Tech University, and I played for Coach Gary Croton and Bronco Mendenhall, both who are former BYU coaches. Um, they were my coaches at the time. And um, got to play some big-time football, man. Got some great stories there about when we played um, Alabama and beat them twice. And, you know, got some great stories about Texas A&M Stadium and how we played them. And, I mean, just some fun, fun, fun games. What, what position did you play? Um, I played stud linebacker, so outside linebacker, and I played some strong safety as well. Yeah. So, depending on. concussions? Uh, not that I remember. Okay. Yourselves from mental slavery. Mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. Yeah. Greetings, my free-thinking brothers and sisters. Yo. Thank you for taking time out of your day to spend a few minutes with us. us. I hope you've had a fantastic week. Hope you found some good in the world. Uh-huh. And I hope you've taken some steps to get yourself one step closer to shaking your servile prejudices and begin seeing the world for what it actually is. My name is Selu Olofipol, your always intrepid host, and I welcome you as we get ready to raise your consciousness. Boom, baby. Let's raise it. (laughs) This is Infants on Thrones, the philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Look for the good in everything Look for the people who will set your soul free It always seems impossible until it's done Look for the good in everyone Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland and this is episode 677. Think on your faith with Selo Olofipo. I mean, he pronounced it better than I did in the intro. Selo Olofipo. But uh, so you're gonna you're gonna meet uh, Selo today. Interesting guy. He's just started a podcast of his own. We had a nice conversation, and you're gonna hear it. That, that you're gonna hear it right now. Here it is. Selo Olofipo. Selo Olofipo. Yeah, that's what I said. Yo yo yo. Hey. <laughs> How's it going, Glenn? Good. How are you? 
Good. How's my audio on your side? Sounds good, but I can't see you yet. Mute myself, start video. There you go. Can there you see me all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, cool. man. Good to see you, brother. See you too. So you know what I did? I, I did. I Googled you. Oh, okay. I, 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 I Googled you. I hope that's not weird. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure you didn't. Like I said, you're not going to find much fascinating stuff because I took down all my content when I, uh, you know, when I went through that transition of being a professional artist and trying a new space in my life. So we're going to have to talk about that because I found this video um, that somebody put together of you and your work. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And I was really impressed. Well, thank like, you. I, somebody I, put I'm that sure, together. I'm sure, you've heard that. <laughs> yeah, somebody put that together when they introduced me. Um, I was I was speaking to. I was speaking to a group. Um, there were there were a group of dignitaries, I guess, that were invite invited over to a dinner type thing at at, uh, at the White House, kind of prior. Um, sorry, oh, not not the White House. Um, the Carnegie. We had a like mm-hmm. a, like a dinner reception type of thing, and they had a couple of us come up and share our stories. And so they put this put together a quick blip, and I thought it was pretty cool. But uh, I didn't it know it st- I didn't know it was still floating around. <laughs> Still is, and it still like shows your website at the end of it, and then I go and click on your website, and it's not there. Yeah, I took it down, man. My wife was really pissed off at me for doing that. I'm sure, she you know. <laughs> in fact, everybody, even my kids, and um, <laughs> you know, honestly, I, I I didn't just stop being an artist. I mean, I'm still an artist, you know. Sure. I just uh, the thing I got tired about was just I just got tired of people always asking me about my adventures in art and I, I just got tired of being identified as this as an artist <laughs> which is weird because it's not that I didn't enjoy it I enjoyed it yeah but I just kind of felt like man do, do people really I mean I have more I have more of a story I I have so many things that about me and and uh yeah I just don't want to be going down you know to my grave and and, and on my epitaph the artist <laughs> <laughs> you know so hey. i don't know because like it really very very impressive what you did with your art and um well i appreciate so, so you so you don't you, you don't paint at all anymore i you know i uh it's this is my new art man yeah this is my new art what we're doing right now i love to connect with people i i'm i'm learning a whole new space i just find so much fulfillment and i mean i can Dude, I mean, I was born to paint, man. I, I, I drew and I art was part of my life ever since I was a child, man. Yeah. You know? So no one taught me how to do those things. It was just, it was just, I guess, just part of me. And so I can always paint. And I actually, I had somebody interview me the other day, uh, which incidentally is going to be my first episode because my, my, my buddy said, hey, look, man, if you're going to do this, man, I really think it's important for your first episode. I think that episode needs to be you because I've already done 15 recordings. I've already done 15 yeah. interviews. You'll be my 16th if you're still willing to share some time with me. But of course, yeah. Um, I yeah, I've already done 15 pre-recorded, ready to, and they're all fun as hell, man. But yeah, but my buddy was like, "Look, man, which one of these are you going to choose?" I, said, I don't know. Maybe I'll do my wife. And he's like, "No, it needs to be you. Like, you need to, you need to tell the world and explain why you're doing this. You know? And yeah. It's funny though because I never really thought back to. Th- I never sat back and thought about that. Like I was just so busy and so consumed in talking to other people and learning from other people and he- hearing people's stories that I never really sat back and put pen to paper and actually wrote that. Like I never even thought about it. Like why? Like I figured out why this? why you're doing it. Why <laughs> right. you're, why you're interested in it? Yeah, exactly. So 
Anyway, hey, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to pretend like we haven't already started. We've already started. We're already like Oh, that's okay. Into this yeah. thing recording. I figured, so I figured you'd just keep going. <laughs> hey, give me a second. I'm going to tell my, my, my wife real quick and my kids. Sure. Because our, our, our walls in here are very, very thin. So hold on just a second. I'm going to let them yeah, know. Yeah. I, just, I need to get me one of those red lights. Do you have a red light at your house that turns on when you start recording? No, the, the only red lights are in my partner's eyes when I tell her to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Hold on just a second. <laughs> all right, man. I'm all yours. All right. Well, so, so let, let's, let's hear your story. You know, um, so we, we talked on the phone a little bit the other day. You, you're pretty fresh out of the Mormon church. Yeah. In, in March, 2020 is when you yep. kind of officially, but, but it started before then um, for a while. And, and, and now you're doing a podcast. When are you going to start your podcast? When are you going to, when are you launching it? This Sunday, man. This Sunday. Okay. So, this Sunday. so yeah, your podcast will be released before this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Is, and um, it's called think on your faith that's correct think on yeah. your faith so so why don't why don't you talk a little bit about what it was that you wrote down <laughs> what I wrote, that i wrote down yeah but like why you're why you're doing a podcast like who are you where you came from your whole just that whole spiel you you, you know how to do it do, do how much okay. of it you want to okay well i'm going to need you to guide me a little bit let me just start right. um why don't I just give you the 30,000 foot overview real quick of just because I feel like it's important for your audience to at least have, you know, have some kind of a backdrop and yeah. you know, understanding of, of where I came from, because all of these things influenced the me that I am yeah. today. Right. Yeah. So real quickly, I was born and raised in Western Samoa. That's the independent country of Samoa now known as Samoa. Man, I thought I did you just hear that notification? No. Okay, maybe it's just on my end. Okay, cool. I thought I turned off all my notifications. But anyway, yeah. I grew up in the independent country of Samoa, which is not the uh, U.S. territory known as American Samoa. Okay. And uh, our family immigrated here in 1983, had to learn a new culture, learn a new language. I had to learn how to speak the English language. Uh, my father uh, was very instrumental in my life, um, as many of your um, I'm assuming that many of your listeners will hopefully listen to my podcast as well, because I think there's some parallels. Sure. And, um, but anyway, um, he was very influence, influential in my life and part of my story. Uh, he worked for the church for 46 years. So pretty much all his entire adult life, he was, he was involved with the LDS church in some shape or form. Um, as a young man, he, um, he, he basically trained and taught the missionaries coming in, the early missionaries. Um, and then, again, subsequently, he worked for the church for 46 years as a translator, uh, translating all of the, a lot of the standard works into the mm -hmm. Samoan language, translating mm -hmm. conference talks and, uh, you know, basically anything that needed translation, right? Is he still alive? No, he passed away in 2013. Okay. So he's, he's no longer with us. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he, he was the reason why we came to this country. I was adopted. Um, so I was adopted. My last name, Olofipo, that I carry is my adopted name. Um, I do not know who my real father is. Never met him. But there's some, uh, there's some nice uh, guesses out there. <laughs> I, I picked up on a little of that from that episode you sent me the other day yeah. with uh, Tama. Yeah. Right. There's, there's, there's a lot of conjecture out there. But, um, you know, it's not, that's not one of those things that really – keep me up at night, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't bother me. I, I, I don't think I've ever really spent more than two minutes wondering, man, I wonder who my real dad is. No, that's never mm -hmm. really, never been part of my story. Um, so, uh, anyway, uh, I was adopted. Now my, my time as a, 
as an adopted child was a, was an interesting dynamic, um, especially when you mix in the fact that we're, we were a very traditional Samoan family. So as we immigrated here, I'm trying to learn a new culture. I know you're trying to do like 30,000 30, foot version of this, but I'm really interested in what it means to be a traditional Samoan. Okay, I'll tell you. Like what, what, what is the, like what, what, how is that different yeah. than being oh, oh my gosh. Like American well, Samoan or oh, hell, when you I'll, came to Utah? To, yeah, to, let me, let me. Let my, me. My, ba- my background was folklore, mythology, anthropology. I'm really interested in, in customs and cultures and oh, beliefs then, and then tradition and all of that. If you're so, into that kind of stuff, then, then, uh, then, then you'll, you won't have a hard time understanding Samoan tradition then. So, Okay. Um, so let me talk about that real quick. Samoan tradition. Um, let me let me see what are the basic tenets. You can't talk about Samoan tradition without first starting with number one. And number one is God is everything. Mm. In fact, it is in our country's motto, which is Mua Mua Leatua Meuma, which means God before everything. So, uh, and, and, and that's irrespective of whatever religion one may be. It's God is everything. So very, very, very traditional um, culture when it comes to religion. In fact, and, and, uh, and how, how is that God um, understood? Like what, well, what is the, who, it's a very, who or it's, what is the Samoan God? Sure. It's a very good question. Now I'm going to preface what I'm going to say, because there, there may be some people on the other side of this microphone when you air this, that, you know, that are going to be historians and, you know, cultural um, zealots, right. And historians and things like that. I'll, I'll, I'm not one of those. I'm not a cultural historian. I'm I'm not a professor, you know, I didn't do a dissertation on these things. So just take, just take my, my comments as just anecdotal. Right. So, um, but but I have some pretty good, you know, I've I've got, it's you, it's your experience. So (laughs) who, who can, who can say anything against that? This is this is how you see it. Yeah. So so anyway, the uh, the tr- the traditional um, Samoan culture. Uh, I'm sorry. Was there a specific question that you had asked me? Yeah, before? about God, because because you oh, said yeah, that God yeah, is everything, yeah. and I'm I'm wondering is that something that comes up out of like the the native Samoan tradition? Is it something that comes in from Christianity, like a, a, a synchronetic blend of things? Out, out so so before before European colonialization because that's what happened to our country. I mean, mm. we were colonialized, right? So um, when, before the Eastern uh, European influence and then before the Western influence of America, before they started sending over their, you know, their missionaries in the early 1800s and whatnot, um, Polynesians always knew that there was a God. And the reason why we know that is because it was passed down through oral tradition. Now, the thing for me as a skeptic, okay, and I'm a skeptic with everything, okay? Mm -hmm. Well, if that's oral tradition, then how the heck do we know that that was actually true? Because oral tradition is a slave to your memory. So if someone is telling you their version of their tradition or their their story, right, that Mm -hmm. may not necessarily jive because we didn't have a recorded alphabet or written language for a very long time up until I I, want to say right around that uh, early 1800s when we began getting European settlers and, you know, um, uh, voyagers and things like that. Right. So we didn't have the written language. We just had orations Mm -hmm. uh, passed out for there. But as, as, uh, as it stands, we are very spiritual people. We knew of the Godhead. And that's why, by the way, incidentally, that's why there's a ton of Polynesians 
um, who converted to the LDS church because much of the LDS doctrine and the LDS story, it jives. There are parallels because we, you know, the, because of Hagoth. Well, so that's, that's to one. Well, that's, <laughs> okay. that's one, uh, you know, that's one theory. The other one, yes. So did you read Bruce? You're, you're allowed to laugh with me when I say because of, <laughs> sure. because of Hagar. Right. Yeah. So, and that came from Bruce, Bruce Sutton, that uh, there's a professor in BYU who wrote a, a book called Polynesians are Nephites. Have you heard that one? No, uh, I, 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 I got excited. You know, like when I was in my book, Mormon Thing, about the Hagoth going out and popu- populating the Pacific. Like, I thought that was cool. I thought that the Japanese were the lost tribes of Israel when I was a missionary in Japan. You know, like I got all Right, right. At that time, so well, I can laugh at it now. Yeah, well, as a side note, yeah, you might be interested, and you you may even be intrigued by this. Yeah, literally July twenty seventh, just like last week, Mm -hmm. last week, um, and I forgot the publication. I forgot the journal that let it out, but it's a it's a credible source. Um, DNA results. So new gene that the they did a, a genome sequencing. And they found undeniable, uh, and that's not the right word. They call it something else, but it's pretty much un, undisputable, yeah. undisputable evidence that, uh, that the Native American bloodline, the gene line of the Native Americans, the early Native Americans, and the Polynesians commingle, mm. and that there are traces. And so that, uh, I'm sure that made um, Professor Bruce Hutton, uh, yeah. you know, Sutton, very happy because he he posited that he theorized that in his book that he wrote about 10 15 years ago yeah and he if posited, they could only get the dna of the native americans to square up with israel right you know, that's then, that's then the you problem. really go yes yeah. that's that's the missing link right now in the mormon <laughs> yeah. faith because now all we need to do is that but that's already passed and gone because they've right. already, they've already got the genetic proof ruled that, that out yeah they yeah. already ruled that out so anyway that was just a little side plot uh, they just don't know where the gathering happened. They don't know where the connection happened. They don't know whether it was the Samoans that voyaged to the Native Americans or whether the Native Americans voyaged to the islands. Mm-hmm. But what they do know with a, 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 a huge preponderance of evidence, they do know that there was a, you know, a gathering, a, a mm-hmm. connection. Connection, so, yeah, cool. Anyway, that's that's kind of the 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 you know the the quick version is that we've always been spiritual, and that's why there was a mass. Um, mass conversion to the LDS faith because the, the basic tenets of the LDS faith is the pre-existence. There's a Godhead and there's an afterlife, right? And then there's angels and spirits and things like that. That all resonated with the Polynesian people, mm. you know? So, uh, and again, the jury's still out as to where the Polynesians before the, uh, you know, the col- uh, colonization period, um, uh, sorry, colonialism, that's a different thing. Prior to that, who knows where they got those ideas from, right? Sure. So, but anyway, we brought that over. And and, and again, part of that uh, religious, um, part of the tradition that's really, um, um, that's identifiable uh, with the Polynesian culture is its strict rules. I mean, talk about Moses's law, man. I mean, eye for an eye, we we, we Mm. take it serious, you Mm. know, and we have, we have those traditions that still is alive today where if one of your, if say your son, you know, saw my son at a, at a birthday party and your son kills my son over an argument, right? Well, it is a rule and a law and it is completely within the bounds of acceptance. We can come over to your house the following day. Okay. 
and we can take your son's life mm. without question. Mm. And that's, that's something you cannot run from. In fact, mm. it is tradition that, it, that the, the family members of the person who committed the crime or committed the act, right? If they find out about it, they've got to, they've got to make some, some uh, serious decisions quick and they have to take themselves as a family and offer themselves up to the family, okay, mm. of the family that's been victimized, okay? And they can literally cover themselves they'll cover themselves with a big mat offering them to the family and they can, and that family can come out with the machete and kill that family while they're covered with the mat or the, the chief can lift the mat up and say, I forgive you. Wow. Pretty, you know, so that's just an example, right? Yeah. So corporal punishment is, is just a part of our growing up. You know, I mean, I think every white person that knows a Polynesian knows how soft they are when they compare themselves to a Polynesian, mm. you know, as far as upbringing goes. Right. Mm. Again, if you've got Polynesian friends, you know, damn well, those friends, been, they got their asses beat, you know, mm. I mean, and, and, and we, the thing though, is we talk about it, we laugh about it because it's like, that ain't nothing, man. I mean, mm. you guys cry about getting your cell phones taken from you. Right. Or we used to laugh about it when we first moved here. You're like, you got time out. Oh my gosh. I wish I had that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And interestingly enough, I mean, I, I talk about this in my, uh, in my first episode, by the way, and I guess I'll do a plug here. Those things, when we moved to this country, Glenn, mm. okay. As a kid, as a kid, you don't have the mental capacity yet. Yeah. You don't have the cognitive strength to be able to process what's going on in your life. You just know that, hey, this is the way we're taught at home. But then when you go to school, you got teachers telling you that, hey, you can report your parents, you know, if this happens or, well, you know, yeah. you've got you got services here called division and DCFS and, you know, all these things that protect the kid. Right. There ain't nothing like that in the islands. Yeah. If you act out in school at, you know, in Samoa. The teacher can whoop your ass, and then when you get home and your parents found out that the teacher whooped your ass, they'll whoop your ass more, right? Mm. And that's just, that's just life because we teach kids at a very young age, you don't talk back to your elders, never. You don't disrespect authority. You hold your tongue. You, those are just things that you don't, you know. So I, I had this very interesting conversation with one of my guests, and he is one of these cultural um, you know, averse guys. Sorry, um, not averse, but uh, adept, uh, very adept in culture. And uh, we talked about that dynamic. You know, we, we, we talked about how um, it's my, my view is that part of my culture sucks because mm. it's impossible for someone to form an independent thought. I think it's impossible. Like, you can't come out and form an independent thought, man. I mean, you'll, you know, you'll be shamed, you, you'll be shut up quick because you're out of place, you know, and what you have to say doesn't fit the norm, right? You got to play mm. by the rules, wait your turn, wait till you get older. <laughs> so mm. those are some of the things that uh, are, are part of my, my culture that I don't like very much. Like you mm. can be an adult, right? If my dad were alive today, Glenn, right? I'm 43 mm. and I've got seven kids of my own. Mm -hmm. Okay. I got my own mortgage, my own home to pay and things, you know, all that stuff. But if my dad were still alive, I'm still, and I know this sounds weird when I say it, but it's, I'm still my dad's son, you mm -hmm. know, I'm, he's still the patriarch of our whole family. Yeah. 
you know? So if he were to come and visit my house, it's, it's his house, right? Mm. Then we, I have to kind of subvert or, um, no, subvert's not the right word. I have to, what's the word I'm looking for, Glenn? Help me out here. I, I have to subvert works for me. I okay. know what you're going for. Yeah. yeah. I'd have to defer, I guess I'd have yeah, to defer. Yeah. yeah. I'd have to defer to my father and, and give him the, you know, the big seat in the house. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And again, you know, so you don't really have any independence as a, as a Samoan person. I feel bad. For How do you kids. become an artist that, I, that, that like expresses your own unique view of the world through art coming out of that culture? Well, luckily, and this is, this is the interesting thing about it. It was the it was the conflicts that I experienced as a kid mm. where I am getting what what a, what an average American would call abused at home mm-hmm. yeah. physically and mentally. So as I'm getting these treatments at home, my dad is also a very respected figure in um, in our community. I mean, he serves at temples, you know, he's working in the church office building. He's always in his church clothes. I don't think I've ever seen him in not in church clothes. He's always in church clothes. Right. And he's a very humble and meek person, but I battled with this because at home he was not that, Yeah. you know, at home. And it seemed like every time we got our asses beat, it was related to church. Like either, mm. you know, either we were falling asleep during scriptures and we, you know, fell out of cadence or, you know, we were late for prayer or we didn't, uh, you know, whatever, you know, um, anything that was related to church, it seemed like that's where, that's where the, the, the thunder and, you know, lightning came down. So hmm. those conflicts that I had to deal with at home, coupled with the fact that I was adopted. So I had to deal with all these things like, where do I fit in this home? Because mm-hmm. I really did. As a young kid, I felt like I just was treated differently. You know, I felt like I had no place from time to time when my, my mom would get mad at me, she'd just cry out in a rage and say, I wish you'd go back to your real mom, you know? Mm. And of course, saying this without ever telling me that I was adopted. Oh. <laughs> so, so I didn't know I was adopted until these things come up and I'm like, oh, well, what do you mean by that? You know? <laughs> anyway, um, those things right there is where I think my love for art developed. Because mm. I grew up in a strict household. I, wouldn't, I wasn't able to go out and hang out with buddies. You know, yeah. I didn't play little league sports like the rest of my friends. You know, all those things. And uh, so I stayed at home a lot. I stayed at home and I just got lost in my work. And I just started sketching and drawing. And I think that's where my, that's where my love affair with art came in. And I just, I just got lost in it. And it made time go by fast, you know, so... And so what did that lead to? So, so we'll, we'll, we'll try to get back on this 30,000 view <laughs> of, of your, your background because you, you, you made quite a name for yourself with your art. I was really impressed when you told me. Well, I think, um, yeah, yeah, I did. And uh, part of my story as an artist, though, um, it wouldn't make much sense unless, unless, the per, unless your audience understood what happened before that. Um, right. You know, when I when I left home, um, luckily I was I was fortunate enough that I had enough ability and enough skill, despite having entered the game of football late in my life. You know, I played it. I, I played football. You know, my sophomore year in high school, and um, I was good enough uh, to earn a college uh, scholarship. And so I played at Dixie Junior College when it was still a junior college. Um, played there for a couple of years, um, partly because I didn't have good grades and I didn't really take school seriously, and partly because I was still developing as a talent, as an athlete, and I, I wasn't really quite ready for Division One ball. 
after playing two years of ball there, I got uh, I earned a scholarship to play at Louisiana Tech University, and I played for Coach Gary Croton and Bronco Mendenhall, both who are former BYU coaches. Yeah. Um, they were my coaches at the time. And um, got to play some big-time football, man. Got some great stories there about when we played um, Alabama and beat them twice and, you know, got some great stories about Texas A&M Stadium and how we played them. And, I mean, just some fun, fun, fun games. What, what position did you play? Um, I played stud linebacker, so outside linebacker, and I played some strong safety as well. Yeah. So depending on concussions, uh, not that I remember. Okay. Yeah. Is that, is that the bad answer? Uh, I don't know if that means I never had them. I just know I never had them, you know, I'm like, why, why are these things a thing, man? I don't, I don't remember getting any concussions, but I didn't probably probably doled out a few. Well, I know this. I, uh, I can tell you without joking at all. I do remember one game that I had a concussion because Mm. I, I do remember making a hit and a play. And then I remember we're in the locker room and I didn't know how we got there. Mm. And so I do remember that. And then it was funny when we watched film, I actually played the entire game with a concussion. Mm. Mm. But what was funny is when we arrived to the locker room and I'm in the locker room and I'm sitting there getting ready to shower, it's as if what happened prior to the locker room was like blank. I'm like, wow, how did we get here? (laughs) So I do remember that one. So yes, I did. I did have that one concussion, but I, I don't remember having anything else. We get, you know, we, we'll get those, uh, what people call stingers, where, the, where your neck, you just get this big shock going down your neck and your arm. Yeah. Got that a lot. And then we get the, you know, the, the stars where you see stars because your helmet pushes into your eyeball socket when you hit and, mm. and it just makes your vision blurred and you see these. So we get that all the time, but that's commonplace, you know. So anyway, but I digress. Yeah. So, so my football experience and my college experience um, was fun. And I, you know, I got to learn all kinds of things. And, and again, that's part of my story as an artist. And I think that actually gave me an edge because I think honestly, people, people found me fascinating as an artist because I didn't look like an artist, Glenn. I mean, Mm, you can look at me and I don't look like your typical artist when you go to an art show, right? I mean, I don't know what artists are supposed to look like, (laughs) Lou. (laughs) Well, I can tell you not Samoan. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But uh, I think I had that, I think I had that going for me was that the fact that I just looked unique, you know, Mm. I don't try to make any, you know, pretenses or, or um, any sort of uh, ideas that I was this super talented artist. I I never thought I was really all that talented. I, I really didn't think that my work was all that great. Um, But other people felt like it was good. And, and I had to think about that a lot. I'm like, what? What's so great about what I'm doing? I don't think it's all that great. I mean, I'll look at other people's work and I'm like, now that's great, you know. But yet I was picking up awards, you know. I was picking up awards here and there. And and uh, before you know it, every award that I accumulated, I, you know, I, I get people paying attention. And um, as, I, as I go and I traverse the country, because I was like a traveling gypsy. I didn't think I was, you know, doing anything all that special. I mean, I wasn't, at the time, I mean, I, I didn't own any boats. I didn't. You know, I didn't go to these awesome galas, you know, where all these important people were. I just, I was a traveling gypsy, man. I was, you know, packing up my trailer and taking these things out and, you know, setting up your booth. And of course you're, you're in juried art shows though. I mean, you're not, you know, you're not just setting up at a street fair. I mean, you're at, you're at these good shows, but I kind of felt like, man, I was really working hard and taking stuff out. And then it was in, in, in my doing so. And in that journey of being an artist, um, is when I 
grabbed the attention of mostly the Polynesian and the Asian um, communities. Because as I was going out there, people would notice. And they're like, oh, my gosh, there's, there's somebody out there that looks like me that's doing this awesome stuff, you know. Mm. And I think that's really where it started. And then I started getting interviewed by news outlets and people started, you know, was just interested in my work, I, you know, mm. again. Um, and then finally, as it started getting out there, that's when I, I think I told you. Did I tell you about when I got emails from? Let's, let's hear it again <laughs> for, for, for the listeners. It's All a good right. story. Yeah. So at the time... Um, I was working as an artist, but I wasn't a full-time artist. And again, I don't go and disclose these things to people. As far as people know, when they're out there collecting my work, I am the artist. And that's just all I do, right? Well, there's a reason why they have the old adage of a starving artist, right? Mm. I mean, I couldn't really quite figure out how to really, really break that ceiling and just I had lots of awesome opportunities and lots of stories to tell you that I won't tell you today because it'll just take forever, but had some awesome experiences during my time that I traveled that really changed who I was and changed the way I thought. But anyway, as I was traveling and doing my artwork, I was selling software. I was, I was selling technology. I was selling Google AdWords and, um, you know, all these, uh, you know, search engine optimization packages to, to businesses, um, banner ads, online banner ads, display ads, and things like that, right? I was selling these types of things, these marketing packages for a, for a company, a big tech company. And I had been with them for about six years at the time. And uh, so I was out there doing my runs and visiting my clients. And I get this email. I get the email first and I click on it. It's an email from the White House saying, hey, we need you to, well, you're invited for this award. Please reply. Deleted it. Thought I got spammed. Yeah. A couple of days later, I get the same email. I'm like, man, someone's hacked me, man. You know, same email, please reply. RSVP. Very important. Deleted it again. Mm. <laughs> so finally, I think, I think it might've been a week. I think it was, it couldn't have been that much longer, you know, that much further after I deleted the emails, probably maybe three or four days after I deleted the emails, I get a call now. And, and on the call, it said, Virginia, you know, so I'm like, Virginia, I don't know anybody from Virginia, you know, so I just, I didn't answer it. I just, good, good thing it was before today's robocalls or you, you wouldn't, oh, you didn't even answer it then. No, I didn't answer it. Yeah. You didn't answer it then. Be, okay, because I'm yeah. looking at it. I said, Virginia, I'm like, this is again, I'm getting, you know, so I just didn't even answer it. Yeah. And then I got the voicemail notification. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm driving and I get the voicemail notification. And I quickly check it and saw that it was the number from Virginia. And it was the lady from the white house. And one of the White House staff secretaries, and I won't, I won't mention her name here, but uh, she said, hey, this is uh, such and such from the White House. You might have received some emails. We haven't heard from you. Are you interested? Please call me back. We need, to, we need to get plans ready and all that, right? I'm like, what is this? So I call back, and she's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad you called me back. You know, uh, We've been trying to get a hold of you. Hey, listen, you've been nominated for an award. It's called the Champion of Change Award. Um, and I'm sitting here, what, you know, why and how, right? And she's like, well, you're an artist, right? I said, well, yeah, I'm an artist. Um, can you tell me a little bit about it? I was like, what do you want to know? You know, so I just, you know, she was kind of asking me the same questions you're asking me, right? Yeah. And so I just quickly just kind of go through the things. She goes, well, man, you're, we, we gone through your website. And the interesting thing is, is that, she told me that they vetted me. She goes, we vetted you before we called you. So I would just want you to know we wouldn't be calling you, you know, if you didn't pass. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I was locked up in college. You know, <laughs> I did all these things. I'm like, are you sure you vetted me, man? 
<laughs> so anyway, I was pretty relieved that uh, the White House found it, uh, you know, uh, noteworthy to reach out to me. Uh, long story short, um, so I did, I was nominated and I was elected to receive the Champion of Change Award. Um, you know, and, and again, they had to explain what that was. But um, for me, and they told us that it was an award that the White House, House gives out to selected people every year. And they, they choose people who are ordinary people doing extraordinary things, um, in, inspiring people with their work, you know, and it could have been just anything, right? So I was up there with other people who were inventors, you know, other people who were musicians, poets, you know, all these cool things. I met some really awesome people, man. So anyway. And, and this was, do, am I remembering 2009? This is 2016, actually. Oh, 16. Yeah. Okay. This is 2009 is actually when I started and I started becoming an artist. Yeah. So, so 2016 would have been the Trump White House. Well, no, right before. No, right before. Okay. So this, this was, um, this was Obama administration. It was right before. Okay. Was it 2016? Yeah, it was 2016. It had to have been. Um, now you got me thinking. Well, hold on. I got it right here. <laughs> well, so apparently, yeah, it was right there. Um, 2000, 2016. Yep. It was 2016 from the Obama administration. Okay. So, so, so it, it, was, it was Obama's last. Obama's last, last pretty much yeah. last two rounds. And it was really cool. Yeah. We got to eat dinner with him and, you know, got to hear him talk. And there was a lot of donors and, you know, people in the, a lot of people with a, with a lot of money, you know, in the, mm -hmm. in the room. And it was pretty cool. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, I'm sitting here like, man, baby, I've reached it, man. I'm, I'm there. It's, you know, the rest of it now is we're going to be living like, you know, we're going to be living large. And of course it didn't happen that way, but um, we felt like we, it was a great experience. I learned a ton from it. I grew from it and I got to see things um, from a different, different lens. So it was a good, it was a good, it was a good moment for me. Put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. That would be an amazing moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's anyway. Awesome. So what else do you want to know, Glenn? I mean, I know we're kind of there at the, that art part, but. Well, I think, I mean, I think, I think we get a pretty good sense of what brought you from where you started to where you are now. Yeah. I, how, how about the church? Like what, what role did the Mormon church play in your life? during this time? Well, I think we talked a little bit about that. I mean, a lot of it's traditional, right? Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't, you can't run away from religion, man, you know, being mm -hmm. a Samoan. I mean, it just kind of comes with the package. Um, what, what, what did you like best about being a Mormon? You know, um, I liked, I, man, I guess, I guess I liked, um, as a kid, there wasn't much that I liked mm. as a kid. Yeah. It was just, it was boring, you know. Um, I I guess I liked the activities. I mean, who wouldn't say they don't like the activities, right? Mm. Everyone likes the activities. I mean, you got food and dances and things like that. So I enjoyed the activities, um, but I thought it was a weird dynamic because the friends at church they weren't your friends at school. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm. you're only friends at church, and then you go to school. You're not friends. You know, that, that's mm. always been a weird dynamic. In fact, I've talked to several people who said the same thing. They're like. You know, here we are in, you know, youth activities and they're all friends here. But man, once out of those activities and outside of church, they don't talk to each other at, church, at mm. school, you know? Yeah. So I think uh, maybe the church is trying some, trying some things to try and help bridge that gap. But uh, I, as a kid, I didn't really like it much, to be honest with you. Um, as an adult, I liked, um, as an adult, I liked, I actually liked the, I liked the fact that 
we got together. I, I didn't like sacrament meeting very much, mm. but I, I actually liked the gospel doctrines and I liked the third mm. hour. I liked third mm. hour. Um, especially man, especially when you dove in and someone had the cojones to bring up something, you know, ask yeah. one of the, ask one of the non, you know, questions yeah. you're not supposed to ask. So yeah. I did like that. I, and I liked hearing people's thoughts. I, I liked that part of it. I liked the conversation part of it. I liked diving, diving into some of these things because, um, you know, let's face it after church, I mean, you'd have to really appreciate religion and the historicity of the church to take time, like personal time outside of church to dive into these things. Right. Mm. And I had, you know, I mean, we got kids, so we got kids who were involved in sports and, you know, then we got the job and they're traveling and you're doing all these things. I didn't really have much time to really appreciate or, or learn gospel principles or doctrine, mm. you know? So um, I would have to tell you, and, and maybe this is getting to the, to the cherry on top before I talk about the other things, but it's relevant right now. Most of my faith and most of, uh, most of my experience with the church was really built on feelings. It was built on emotions and, and mm. how I felt. Uh, sure, there were lots of times when I felt really good and I went to church and listened to fast testimony meetings. And I remember people standing up there, I mean, almost to the brink of crying, you know, and would say things with such conviction, things like, yeah. I know, I know that God lives. You know, I know that Jesus is the Christ. I, I know these things. I, I've seen the blessings pour out on my family. And those are the things that, you know, and I think it's great. I think in the church's wisdom, you know, in the fast testimony meeting is, that's huge. I think that's their biggest conversion tool is fast and mm. testimony meeting. I, at least if you ask me. That's funny. That was always the meeting that I didn't want to take. Oh, really? Investigators <laughs> too, as a missionary, because that, that's that's when all the weirdos get up and start telling. You know, well, saying, I guess you're right. You're right. There, there yeah. are. You definitely got. But, but you every now and again you'll get these. You'll get these guys. Oh yeah. You'll get these guys that stand up there and just shakes the room. You know. Sure. And and I think I remembered those more than the other weirdos. You know, mm. the guys yeah. that just like to hear themselves talk. Right. Mm. Um, yeah, of course we, we know that, but I think I liked the testimony meetings because I really was interested. Mm -hmm. I was interested in people. I didn't want, I liked the fast and testimony meetings more than the classes mm. because the classes, the teachers just reading the syllabus, you know, just yeah. go, going right off of the, the manual, yeah. you know, and sticking within the margins. Right. Um, fast and testimony meeting was kind of entertaining for me. Cause it's like, let's see what, you know, let's see what's going to happen today. Right. Yeah. Let's yeah. see who's going to open themselves up and say something crazy. So yeah. I really We're, did, did, did you get up and bear your testimony a lot? I did. Um, I, I don't, I won't say a lot. Hmm. I won't say a lot. How many times a year on average do you think? Well, there was a period there from 2000 to 2010. I got married in 2000 and you know, 2010 is a good, whole number there right so for a 10-year span i probably bore my testimony twice oh wow okay so not much at all and it may not even be twice but yeah. so twice okay um okay you know what? maybe three times maybe three times because i remember i probably <laughs> I, I probably felt obligated to say a test say a few words after i blessed my child or something like that right yeah yeah so um that and then from 2010 to 2020 um, I probably bore my testimony 40 times, mm. 
but that came all within the last couple of years mm. beca- because of my calling, because I served in the state guy council mm. and you would bury your testimony. Well, yeah. no, you know what? More, way more than 40 times. I was just, ta- I was just counting sacrament, you know, sacrament yeah. meetings and things like that. Um, I, and because I spoke a lot, I didn't feel like it was necessary for me to bear my testimony on fast and, you know, fast and testimony meetings. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really, I didn't take that time from people, you know, mm-hmm. cause I, cause I did, I shared my testimony quite a bit from the pulpit when I spoke. So, yeah, but you know, outside of, outside of that, I, I, I do like the structure. I like the structure that it provided. Um, I felt like it made things easy. Like it, it almost gave us a blueprint. You know, you don't get a, you don't get a, a, a parent manual when you become a parent raised children. But I think the church is the next best thing. I mean, the, yeah. the church has the youth guides. It's got sure. the dress codes. You know, it's got what you're supposed to do, what you can't yeah. say, how you comb your hair, you know, like all those things. I mean, yeah. it makes parenting pretty darn easy because it's got the written manual. You stick with that and it helps you. You get blessed and, you know, and then you have to fight with the kids all the time. Yeah, You can't cut your hair like that, Sako. Why? Well, because in the book. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the structure thing was uh, was I, I did like that as an adult for sure. Yeah. So so something something made you not want to be Mormon anymore. Yeah. Um, that's that's putting it lightly. Um, I I can't, I it was during the time, and this is this is the thing that I find very interesting. When people finally heard that I had left the church, okay, the immediate response and the immediate reaction was I was looking into all kinds of anti-Mormon material. Mm. It couldn't have been further from the truth. Yeah. In fact, it was the exact opposite. When I got called into the high council a couple years ago, and interestingly enough, the time that I got called into the high council I had literally just two months prior to me getting called, I had just accepted a new job and a new career in Las Vegas. Hmm. So I was living in Salt Lake City at the time. I had accepted a job in Las Vegas where I would commute to Las Vegas. And so, right, and that's the job that I, that's my career now. I mean, I still, I'm, I'm an independent contractor. I, you know, I, um, I design luxury pools for, mm-hmm. you know, for luxury homes and things like that, high-end clientele. And, uh, and so the requirement of my job is I would have to come out here, you know, at least, excuse me, at least three days a week. And oftentimes I would leave Sunday night. I would jump on the last plane out of Salt Lake City at about eight o'clock and I'd get to Vegas in 55 minutes, right? Yeah. So short trip. But I did that every week. And again, I, I took that job on just a couple months prior to me getting called into the high council. Mm. And so every week I'm jumping on the plane and every week I'm j- coming back. So three days a week I'd spend in Vegas. And while I'm here in Vegas, you know, obviously I don't have family here. It's just me and I'm, you know, in my office and I'm, I'm out there meeting my clients. I'm, I'm doing my designs. I'm drawing. And while I'm, you know, while I'm out here, you know. In I'm, Sin City by the way, it's yeah. called Sin City. It was Sin City. And an interesting, <laughs> interesting thing at the time, at the time, I didn't really struggle with those distractions at all. Yeah. I, I, my wife was worried, obviously, you know, right. my wife, my, my wife was worried, but I had to give her some sense of comfort and say, Hey baby, trust me, 
when we get there, we're going to do our, and this was, this was a good pacifier for my, my wife, you know, because we would do our scripture study in the evenings and then we'd wake up early in the morning and do our, you know, yeah. our, um, what's the thing to come follow me and all that stuff. Right. When that started coming out. Um, so yeah, we were doing our regiment and we'd actually have zoom video meetings with my family and have family prayers together and do the whole gamut. Right. Mm. While I'm away. I actually enjoyed it and it, but it also gave my wife comfort that dad's handling his business, you know? Yeah. And, um, but, but truthfully, um, I had no desire. I mean, there were times I, I won't be, I'm not going to hide away from anything, man. I mean, um, there were times when I traveled, um, that I, that I partook. Yeah. Hmm. But I, before, I mean, this, this early on, like in 2010 to 2013, when I was traveling around the country and doing my arts and things like that. Yeah, man, there were, there were times that, that I partook and there were times that maybe even I drank some beers and I shouldn't have, you know, then you come home and clean yourself up and get back into the, you know, back, back in the race. Right. Mm. Um, but, but anyway, during this period, I would say from 2000, yeah, I would say from 2000, say from 2013 on. So for the last seven years, I was really committed. I was really committed to being a good priesthood holder. Like yeah. I wanted to be a good father. I wanted, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to grow my testimony. It was something I actually desired, yeah. you know, and I went after it and I, and I did my best. So during this time that I was traveling back and forth to Vegas, yeah, it was no problem because I just didn't even have any, not even an inkling of, yeah. of any temptations. temptations. Yeah, yeah. Nothing at all because yeah. my mind was just preoccupied with the things that I was learning, you know? Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, when I got this calling, I think you know where this is going. When I got this calling, I accepted it. And every time that I was here, man, I had, I had more time than, than your average person. Mm. Because again, no distractions, no kids, right? And you don't have to go out and take them to practices. You don't have to, you know, um, talk with your wife for a while, right? You, you had, once I worked, it was all in the scriptures because I was preparing for talks. So while I was in the plane and waiting at the airport, I'm, you know, I'm doing audio books. I'm reading over general conference talks and preparing for my talks. And while I'm in the office, I am in the office till midnight, just preparing talks, looking at scriptures, man, that was the time when I finally said, man, I got my opportunity to actually study now. Right. And I did that. And as I started studying, I started paying closer attention to what the scriptures said more so than how they felt mm. and more so than what conference talks said. That's what it means. I was just reading it. I was just reading scripture. Okay. And um, as I was doing this questions started to arise, like, um, you know, the first thing that, that, that I bumped into was Mosiah two, uh, Mosiah two verse 38. Um, if I remember it correctly, where, um, you know, I was talking about, I was talking about the, um, the afterlife, you know, and, and, and actually talking about the apostate. And I remember that that scripture had a huge impact on me where it's saying, man, and I'm just paraphrasing here, right? Mm-hmm. For those who have once known God, and have tasted of those blessings and have, you know, and have known the righteousness that have come from, from God's goodness. And then afterwards turns their back on them. Okay. Um, Mercy hath no claim on that man. 
I mean, they're strong words. Mm. Mercy hath no claim on the man that changes his mind, and that the, the and that the the eternal um, reward for the person that does that is eternal torment, mm. eternal torment. And I and, and that that scripture stuck out to me, and I kept reading this, and it, and I stayed up, you know, I was just up like, what is this? Is God really that person? Like, is he really that jealous? Is he really that insecure that he would create us as children and then say, hey, here you go. You have the freedom to go and, and live your life. You got free agency. Just don't pick the wrong door. <laughs> mm. You know, just, just don't choose against me. You can choose all you want. Just don't choose against me. And then I started thinking about this more practically. Like I started internalizing this and I started thinking, okay. I know God's this supreme being, but let me just say, for instance, if I was God, in my puny little mortal brain, could I see myself doing that to my children? Could I see myself saying, all right, you know, son, you did good. Uh, daughter, you did good. You guys come over here. You're in this part of the room right here. You two, you will burn in hell forever. And mercy will have no claim on your soul because you changed your mind because you didn't follow me. I just couldn't play this out. Yeah. I couldn't reconcile this in my brain. E even having the shit kicked out of you numerous times as a Samoan kid <laughs> by your right. own dad, he, he still would come to you. It, like he wasn't banishing you and kicking you out forever, all yeah. eternity, no mercy. Right, right. And that's, a, that's actually a really good, um, it, it's a good analogy actually, because, um, and it's a good parallel because you're right. Just because I had these experiences as a kid doesn't mean that I, my dad hated me and that doesn't mean right. that he actually kicked me out of his house and tried to get rid of me and things like that. No, yeah. he was still my dad. Yeah. And he loved me and I knew that. And yeah. I loved him. But remember, as a kid, I can't, you, you don't have the mental capacity to, to, to process sure. it. Yeah. But later on in my adult years, right, I was able to reason this because I did. I had this conflict as an adult. I had time for myself. And I realized after all that, you know what? My dad was just repeating what was done to him. Sure. You know, he was, he was a byproduct of his culture and his tradition, you know? And so I, re I, I chose to hold on more to those fond memories that I had. And that's what got yeah. me by, you know, and this is as an adult. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, um, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, grab, I, I was grappling with these things with, with that particular scripture. And then, of course, you read on and you get into 2 Nephi 5, you know, and that's where it talks about the black skin. And I couldn't take my eyes off of that. I'm like, no, that's exactly what God means. When he says, I will curse you with the skin of blackness. Like, okay, I get it. Listen, listen just take this for example. Do we agree that there's some ambiguity in Scripture? Sure, there's a lot. There's a, lot of th there's a lot of things in Scripture that you can say, well, it doesn't really mean that. Sure. It could mean this. Mm -hmm. Where is the ambiguity in, I will curse my seed with a skin of blackness. Yeah. And then my seed shall not mix your seed with their seed. I just want to know where the ambiguity in that is. Where's the moral you know, where, what's the side story behind that? There is none. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's, it, it is what it says. But yet I've grown up, Glenn, I've grown up in our, in our, in our religion, always hearing people soften that up. 
Yeah. Always hearing conference talks and then reading the heading that incidentally got changed in 2010. The heading in the Book of Mormon says withdrawal of the spirit. But prior to 2010, the heading in the Book of Mormon did not say that. It clearly said blackness of skin, right? Mm. So there's there's just these things that just started to, you know, um, enter my consciousness that I couldn't I couldn't evade anymore. Mm. Yeah. And and all that did was it it wakened my soul to a degree where I'm like, okay, I'm gonna read the scriptures. <laughs> and and here's the thing. Something very important happened to me. On one of the trips, and by this time I had already started questioning. On one of my trips back to Vegas, there's a kiosk there right by our little uh, gate. And the plane was delayed a little bit. I'm like, oh, crap, I got to wait for another two hours, you know. And so I thought, all right, well, hey, two hours, that's another two hours where I get to learn something, right? Yeah. So I went to the kiosk and I bought me a new book. And I bought the book Sapiens. Nice. <laughs> I bought the book Sapiens. Uh-huh. And oh my gosh, I could not put the damn thing down. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I started reading this book and I'm in there. I almost missed my flight because I didn't want to be, I just, I wanted to be the last one on because I just wanted to keep going. And then I read it all the way through the flight. I burned through this book, man. You know, just chewed through this book in a few days. And that's when I learned for the first time what? there were more species than homo sapiens on this planet. I had no idea, you know, and then you start, wait a minute, a hundred thousand years at least is when homo sapiens have been here. Wait a minute. The first humans been around since 2.5 million years ago. And I, and I'm sitting here like, Oh my gosh, my, my brain exploded from there. Yeah. And I'm like, no way. I said, what does the Bible have to say about this? Like literally, because it, it conflicted, you know, what it said there conflicted because we were, I thought that we were the only man. Mm-hmm. I thought we were, I thought God created us this way, the way you and I look right now. Yeah. Okay. I thought that's the way that God said he created us. He created us in his own image and he planted Adam and Eve in the garden and there was it. They, they yeah. procreated. I mean, never mind that we evolved from primates, yeah. you know? Never mind that we've been on the world on on the planet for two point. So, so up years. up until that point that you read *Sapiens*, you, you didn't really put much stock into evolution and. Well, no, because well, first of all, you, you take this in perspective. Take this into right. perspective here, Glenn. I lived at a time, right, and you probably remember this too. Yeah. I thought there were only nine planets, and Pluto was one of them. Mm. You know, that's what we were taught in school, and then and then we realized later. <laughs> Right, <laughs> that there's not just nine planets. There are billions, and mm-hmm. not just that. There are billions of stars too. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. So to to answer your question, no, because also when we were in college, sure, we talked about you know biology and things like that. And of course, there were some there were some whisperings of evolution. But you remember this going in college, right? And in high school, you didn't really dive into it. It wasn't something that you that that the world hasn't accepted evolution at this point, and and religion had done a good job, you know, curbing it and keeping it mm. on the fringe. So, evolution was just an idea, mm. it was an idea and a theory that was kicked around. And well, now we know that it's pretty much factual with a less than a three to three percent margin of error, you mm. know, and that's according to uh, uh, Francis Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project, you know, a really great scientist. 
Um, but anyway, yeah, my, I will tell you, and that's why I keep talking about this on mine, right? And you'll, you'll hear it in my introduction. Yeah. My consciousness was raised. And that's why I feel so strongly about that term now. And that's why I challenge people now, just raise your consciousness. And I challenge myself to raise my consciousness because I feel like that's what happened. That's what happened. When I, when I started reading the scriptures and then I grabbed a book, just a, I mean, and there was no reason for it. It just, I just liked the cover. It was a good looking book. Mm. You know, it's got this thumbprint out and it was very captivating. Wait, the history of humans, the history of mankind. This is awesome. So I started reading through it and I'm like, every page I turn, man, what? We had imagined realities. Our brains mutated. We weren't always at the top of the food chain. You mean to tell me that we were hovering around the middle of the food chain not too long ago? What changed yeah. all this? You know? So all the- I, I, I liked it when he said that it wasn't man who domesticated wheat. It was wheat. It was wheat who domesticated man. man. That <laughs> is. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. There's, there's a ton yeah. of things in that book, Glenn, as yeah. I'm sure you're aware of, yeah. that absolutely raised our consciousness. Sure. And then, you know, and again, now I'm speeding up here, but other people did that for our humanity. And this is, again, I later learned after I completely dove into the secular world, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning I'm not going to, I'm not going to hold on to religious dogma anymore. Cause I, I felt like I've been missing out on the action. I felt like the whole world was advancing. I felt like the whole world was moving on without me. Mm. And I felt like I was still stuck in horse and buggy, you know, mm. I'm like, mm. seriously, I didn't know that. I didn't know that we, I didn't know that our DNA was 96%, you know, um, a copy of primates. I, I did not yeah. know that. Oh my yeah. gosh. You know, so all these things just reinvigorated me. And, and from there, I just knew without a doubt, Glenn, I mean, and that's not just the only book, right? I mean, I started reading into more into Charles Darwin. Mm -hmm. I started reading Stephen Hawking's. I started reading, you know, I, I, I got Francis Collins book, um, the language of God. Have you heard about that one, by the way? No, that's no, a good I one. So. I, I recommend mm -hmm. that reading. And by the way, the reason why I recommend it is because Francis Collins is actually, He's a, he's a religious apologist. He's a Christian mm. and he's the head of the human genome project. In fact, he's the president of the NIH right now, the national Institute of health. Mm. He's uh, he was um, Dr. Fauci's former boss. Mm. Um, but anyway, um, again, head of the human genome project. I personally believe that your grandkids will be talking about him in school, not Einstein mm. because he unlocked the human genome code, you know, and he understands now what build, what makes you and I, you know, he knows the code to eradicate cystic fibrosis, you know, with enough time and with, with enough study, he can locate the code to eradicate, you know, um, cancer, you know, things like that, because those are all part of the human code. Anyway, just all these things as we sit here talking, I mean, I just, I could not think anymore the way that I've always thought. You know, I had to elevate. I don't think it. Francis Collins was one of the 10 that you put on that list in that email that you sent to he, me. He wasn't. <laughs> He no, was, you're going to have to change that. Well, he didn't make the 10. He didn't make the oh, 10 okay. because I had to think about, I had to think about it. Cause I really did. I didn't just jot down 10. I was like, yeah. man, there's a lot of good ones out there, man. But yeah. I really started thinking about the ones that really helped me raise my consciousness. And the reason why Francis Collins didn't make the cut is because of all the things that he's done. He still takes the position that it is because of what he knows that gives his testimony that there is a God legs to stand on. Mm. He knows that because the human genome project is so orderly and it's so 
it's so formulated. It's so perfect is, is the way he puts it. He, you know, and I'm just kind of giving you the layman's terms. He says, I cannot coin this up to just happenstance, you know, and, and it's funny because Richard Dawkins would eat his butt up because Richard Dawkins would say, it's not happenstance. It's natural selection. Yeah. It's natural selection, which is a very slow, slow process. Yeah. You know, cause when people start thinking about how we got here, they think we climbed the evolutionary mountain with one, you know, shortcut up the hill you know, a straight linear shot up the mountain. That's not how evolutionary biology works. That's not how natural selection works. It's taking the slow route from the base of the mountain and slowly coiling your way up inch by inch by inch. And every inch you move up that mountain is equal to a million years. You know, that's how that works. And so um, anyway, I, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but that's- it was an interesting tangent. I'm glad you went <laughs> off on it. But these are all the things that I'm, I'm just, I mean, I'm telling you, man, we could talk for hours because one thing leads to the, another. And it, I, I, I start to stumble across these amazing discoveries and I keep kicking myself in the shin thinking, man, why didn't I know this stuff before? I know the answer to that question because it's one of the tempo questions that's asked when you go for your tempo recommend. Mm. Do you subscribe to anything that's contrary to the teachings of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Well, no, of course not. <laughs> okay, yeah. you're in, you know? Yeah. Um, all the things that we just talked about are things that the church shuns. Mm. They don't want you reading Sapiens, you know? They don't want you to pick up Richard Dawkins' book. They don't want you to do any of that, you know? They just want you to just, you know, stay within this box that we've, man, we made all these pamphlets for heck's sake. Use them up, you know? Yeah. We taught you how your kids should be dressed. We taught you how many earrings they should have. You know, we tell you all these things, just live by those rules and you'll be safe. There's safety in that. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's, that's where I had reached a point. And, and interestingly, and coincidentally, well, I'm not going to say coincidentally because I read the Celestine prophecies. You asked about James Redfield, right? Yeah. When, when did you read Celestine prophecies compared to Sapiens? Oh, Celestine prophecies was back in 2008. Okay, because I I read that like in the '90s, like when whenever it first came out. I know I I was I was a teenager (laughs) when it first came out. You know what's interesting? You know how I you know how I heard about Celestine prophecies? How's that? Glenn Beck. Okay, Glenn Beck, and um, I was listening to him uh, back in 2006, you know, 2007, whatever. And I was uh, at this point, I was traveling, you know, a lot, and I didn't listen to music. Music puts me to sleep. It was audio books, you know. Yeah. Audiobooks kept me up. And, and it was around this time that Glenn Beck was, I think he was converting. If I'm, mm. if I'm saying, if I remember it correctly, I think he was converting to the church at that point. Okay. And he was giving up all his, you know, bad habits. He was a bad alcoholic and, right. you know, and uh, anyway, I was just going through the local library, getting ready to go and, you know, on another trip. And I <laughs> checked out like four books you know, all on Abraham Lincoln and, you know, uh, all this stuff. And then I, and I picked up one from Glenn Beck and, uh, and that book, he shared a lot of things about what he had noticed in his life, you know, and one of the books that he read was the Celestine prophecies. And that's when I, you know, that's when you, you, you might recall the principle of synchronicity, right? You know what I remember about that book, cause it's been a long time since I've read it. I, I remember I was very intrigued because these so-called like there were nine hidden prophecies, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, and, and he goes on this tour down into Peru and, 
each chapter is revealed like another truth or yep. something like that. But they were supposed to have been from a document that was lost from the world around 600 BC. Yeah. So like there, there were these Mormon like parallels. the Holy Grail, like the Holy oh, Grail. <laughs> yeah. Well, or, or like the golden plates, right. um, you know, that, that, um, yeah. So, so, but I don't remember what the specific, um, revelations were. So one of them was synchronicity. Well, yeah, I guess synchronicity makes sense. Well, well synchronicity, synchronicity, synchronicity is basically the overarching theme of the whole book. Is it? Okay. And synchronicity is the, is the principle that, and I, man, I preach a lot about this when I speak to, you know, when I speak to, to groups, because I believe it. I'm a living testament of it. I put yeah. it to work. Yeah. I basically took the story, the novel <laughs> Celestine Prophecies, and I lived it, man. And basically what it is is the idea that you live in a universe that that is for you. That you live in a universe that, you know, despite what religion may teach you, it's not God that knows you personally. It's the universe. The universe knows where you're supposed to be. And it's based on this idea that we just don't pay attention to these breadcrumbs enough. There's breadcrumbs in front of us every single day when you're driving down the road, you know, and this and, and, and you, some of this might start to you might recall some of these stories in the, in the Celestine prophecies like literally don't just drive down the road anymore. Like drive down the road and notice the things that you are passing on the road. If you're on I-15 and you're driving to a destination, don't just drive and don't just be tunnel vision like drive and pay attention to the things that are around you the signposts like actually read you know the billboards actually notice the people walking on the street like notice the guys next to you in the car you know notice all these things and the principle of synchronicity says when you start noticing these things things will things will just grab you and and they'll and they'll take your mind and they'll take you to the next destination right and they'll say hey It'll recall your memory at that point, and it'll start to connect all these breadcrumbs. Like as you pick up these breadcrumbs and you start following the trail, the idea is, is that your path will be synchronized with another individual from somewhere, you know, out there in the world, right? Doing the same exact thing. Is that what brought you and I together, Lou? I think so. Absolutely. No, all I do. Right. I it, like the, it. Because the principle of synchronicity is real. You know, it's, it, it's real. Your, your path is going to be connected with some other individual doing the same thing you're doing. And we're both seeking for truth. You know, we both want higher learning. We both want to be better individuals. Yeah. We both want to know how to love more. We yeah. both want to know what we're, what, you know, what's our, what, what are we called here to do? If you believe in that kind of thing. And, and if we are called here to do, how do I find that? You know, yeah. how do I connect with that? And I'm kind of in that, I'm, I'm kind of in that, um, I'm kind of in that gray area right now because my testimony and my, um, my activity in the church define much of what my path was and where I was going. You know, I'd have to, I'd have to connect with my heavenly father and I'd have to commit myself to supplication and prayer. I'd have to fast, you know, I'd have to double down on tithing and fast offering in order to get this, you know, more clarity and, and more um, understanding of where my path is supposed to go, you know? Those, those are the things that religion offers, right? You do these certain things here. You live by these certain covenants. You live a clean life. You attend the temple. Things will conspire 
and God will bless you and he'll rain down these blessings upon you. And it's a great story. It really is. It's a great story and it's a great, um, it's a great institution um, for a lot of people. It's just not great for me anymore. Right. You know, so um, anyway, yeah, uh, that's, that's kind of, but that gray area that I was talking about right now is, well, I have to re I have to replace that structure. Now I have to replace that paradigm of thought that used to give me clarity now. And now where do I find that clarity? And alas, this is where we come to that question. Now, why the podcast? Yeah, I think, I think that was it. What we just talked about is why the podcast, I, I want to garner information from people like yourself. Mm -hmm. I want to bring people in and I just want to talk. Yeah. Share stories. Yeah. You know, let's just talk, man. What do you do? You know, what's your life like? You know, what are the things that make you tick? What are important for you? You know, how do you find, how do you find truth? What does that mean? You know, Sam Harris and freaking Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson. like yeah. went the rounds over, over truth. Right. I mean, they spent yeah. an entire hour and a half trying to just talk about truth. Trying to define it. Trying to define it. <laughs> exactly. I couldn't even agree on a definition of it. I know. It's hilarious. Yeah. But, uh, I, lo I love both those guys. Yeah. Um, but, but like I told you, Jordan Peterson eludes me because there's part of him that, especially in his book that, um, was it the 12 Rules of Life? Mm -hmm. that? Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that one eludes me a little bit because in the first half of the book, you would have thought that he was an atheist. Mm. And then the second half was like, wait a minute. What? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he starts to talk more and more like an apostle almost, you know, like he, mm. he knows the scriptures really well. Anyway, he's yeah. a, he's, he's a, he's a great thinker and I, I do like him. He just kind of, I just have to, I guess I get, have to dive in a little bit deeper. So it's, it, it, it's hard to know where somebody stands when you can't like pin him down to you, something. You can't pin him that's, down. That's what's hard with him. That's what's hard. Yeah. yeah. I love, I love that about him. Right. Well, in fact, <laughs> I don't know if you, I don't know if you, well, and, and this is funny because you said, man, Sam Harris is just too rigid. But you yeah. might recall a, you you might recall a um um, an exchange, where Sam and you know Sam and uh, and Jordan is going at it, and Jordan's trying to tell him like, well, hey, look, I live as if there is a God, and Sam's like, what, you know, and they're going after him because he, you know, Jordan couldn't bring himself to actually say that there is one. It was just an interesting exchange. He couldn't bring himself to say that there is a God, yeah. but yet he said that he lives and acts as if there is one. Yeah. Now here's, what's interesting when they were talking about that, not one point now, maybe it was, maybe I missed the earlier part of it and maybe he's talking about the Christian God, but I think that question is interesting altogether. Like which one, like which one, you know, which one exists when we talk about in God, we trust which one, the Protestant God, the Catholic God, the Mormon God, the Judeo God, the Islamic God. Like, which one are you talking about? You know, so when I and again, I, may, I, I put a post on there one day and it offended all kinds of people because it was the fourth of July and they started posting all this stuff up on Facebook. And, and I just I just trolled people. So I was like, oh, which one? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I kept saying that in God we trust. I'm like, which one? <laughs> yeah. So it, it, and, you know, when. When, when I was studying what I was studying with folklore and I started looking at vernacular religion, it became pretty clear to me earlier on or early on that it, it asking which God gets down to the level of individual mm -hmm. because the, the God that I believe in and the God that you believe in, we might say it's the same thing, but yeah. it's not. Yeah. 
It's not. Like if you really sit down with two people who say that they believe in the same God and you ask them to list out all the characteristics of the God that they believe in, yeah. you're going to find differences. Yeah. And um, so it, 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 I, I came to understand it as just a projection of ourselves onto the universe or, or whatever, right. you know, like which, which I think is what a lot of these things are. But um, yeah, anyway, um, I liked the, the, I think the thing with Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris and their discussion on truth that was the most beneficial to me was the way that Jordan Peterson, I thought made a very good point that although you might want to be a champion of truth and reality, because of our physical senses, we never have direct access to reality. We never have direct access to truth. It's always filtered through our mind, through our physical senses, through these limitations that only give us a sliver of what's out there. And so we're never really even responding to what is real. We're just responding to our perception. That's correct. Because, because truth I, is relative. Truth is It's relative. all relative. And that's why I think when he says, I, I act as if there is a God, but I can't say that I believe, you know, I know that there's a God or that there is a God. I, I think he's being honest um, and, and truthful to that sense of perception. He's like, this is just my perception. It could, it, it's flawed. I'm, I'm not going to like stake my, my reputation on it or anything. I'm not going to, you know, say this is, 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 I know, I know, I know. Um, and I think so I'm going to go back in here, but I think if, if someone's going to make that claim, um, they, they really actually would need to define what that means because when someone says I'm acting as if there is a God, yeah, that means you're abiding by certain tenets, certain rules, certain guidelines, certain principles. But you still don't know what he means when he's saying God, like which God, Jordan? Like, you know, the question that you ask, like what, it's a perfect question to ask. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, that, that think, you act as if there is. What, yeah. does, that, what does that even what, mean? What does he or it look like? Because... Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you can if you can formulate that idea in your brain, that gets you a little bit closer to what you're actually trying to understand. But I guess that's my point is that if he's trying to act as if there is a God, then he has to be able to define what that God means, because that God, if he is acting as if there is a God, mm -hmm. then that means all of his actions and all of his behavior is in line with whatever that God constitutes as righteous or here yeah. are my rules. Here are my sure. laws. You know, if, if it's even a God that has laws and rules. Yeah. But then, but then they, they have it, it or he or she must have rules in order for someone to act as if there is one, because if there are no rules, then how do you say I'm acting as if there is a God, if there are no rules or tenets or, or precepts to live by? That's a good question to chew on for a while. It is a good one because, and that's, I guess that's what I'm thinking is if someone says they're acting as if there's a God, well, then you have to define for me what, what makes you act, you know, what makes you act a certain way, because that's, that God will have some defined rules, you know, and again, that's why, you know, that's why I, I believe, and that's one of my things I'll say too, for um, anybody else who chooses to listen to, to my podcast, I, I will always say. You know, um, despite what Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens may say, I actually believe that religion is utilitarian. I, I do. I, I do. Well, that was one of the, the big contributions of Sapiens for, yeah. for me, you know, yeah. the, like the value of fictions. Yeah. Like the, the, the very valuable role that fictions play in bringing people together um, and, and progress and technology. And, well, it wasn't know, just the wouldn't. value. It, it, was, it, was the, it was the actual catalyst yeah 
that 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 propelled the sapiens to to endure Mm -hmm. because without that mutation in our brains without us getting that part in our brains that imagines these realities and have imagined realities we wouldn't have the ability to cooperate flexibly with one another yeah because that's what that's what's that's what's got you and me to sit down and talk cordially with one another Mm -hmm because we have these imagined realities and we have these rules that's kind of implicit in our existence now that, Hey, we're going to play fair with each other. We're going to be nice. You know, we're yeah. not going to, you know, turn on each other here and, 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 you know, find out where you live and go and kill you, you know, for yeah. whatever reason, you know, but those are the, or my son, because my son didn't do anything to your son. That's right. <laughs> he wasn't, he wasn't even at that party. So. That's right. He wasn't even at that party. So, but you're right. I mean, uh, there's so many wonderful things that so many wonderful people who have done that, or, or have done for society. And I think I can, I, I'm okay with saying this. I think that's where, I think that's where religious religion is a travesty. Because it tries so hard to keep its adherence in a box. It tries so hard. It, it, it doesn't just, I mean, it has injunctions, flat out injunctions that says you step out of this box, right? You, this will happen. There's, there's threats. There's threats there that, that, that um, makes people feel guilty or makes people um, fearful of exploring. And that's a real thing. And I think that's the real travesty of religion is it doesn't allow people to explore, explore thought, you know, explore what else is out there. And I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it again. If religion is so confident in its own teachings, and I said this to somebody else who got offended by what I said, and I told them the same thing, and I'll say it here. If you are so confident in what your religion or your gospel teaches you, there's no reason why you should be offended by what I say, because you should have enough assurance that my belief is going to, you know, result in me burning and rotting in hell forever. Isn't that good enough for your conscience? You know, I mean, if that's what you believe, why would you get offended? You know, why would you be so defensive and why would you get so angry at, uh, you know, at, at what I'm sharing? Because I, I will say it too. I'm sharing a belief, by the way, you know, the person on the other side of this coin who is the believer, who is the religious zealot, will be upset at people like me saying, I'm out there attacking the church. And I'll say, wait a minute, why are you calling this attacking the church? Haven't you ever stopped to consider that maybe this is a belief? Like I'm actually believing in what I'm saying, and I'm doing the very same thing that you have your missionaries go out there for two years and do. You're going and spreading your belief. You know, because I'll, I'll tell you right now that people who don't subscribe to your religion, they might think you're attacking them because you're claiming you're the only true gospel in the world and everybody else is wrong. You know, what does that say about those guys? I mean, that's highly, <laughs> that's highly condescending, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're in the wrong church, man. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, anyway, that's, those are the kind of things that I like to talk with, talk about with people. I mean, this is extremely therapeutic. It's, it's extremely helpful because we start talking about things that we never considered before and it triggers something and you, re- you remember something that you might've heard from someone or it leads you down another path and you appreciate what that person's contribution, you know, was to like, like Yuval Harari. He's a huge, I mean, oh my gosh, what a consciousness raiser, man. Oh yeah. You know, I think, 
I think he probably was at the forefront of unlocking this door for me. Cause then I started reading into Charles, uh, Charles Darwin, you know, I started getting into, you know, um, all these things. I got into Christopher Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens, a hero of mine, man. Mm. You know, a lot of people think him as, as, you know, the, the, the antichrist, you know, but, but Christopher Hitchens, when I, when I, when I watched his videos and I read his books, I couldn't help but to see a man just having fearless squaring up with orthodoxy and saying, look, if you want me to believe this, explain it, explain it. Right. Let's, you know, and, and that's where I got this idea that I'm never, I'm not going to read scripture anymore with the assistance of the topical guide, you know, with the assistance of general conference talks, because this thing was, when was this thing written? When, when was the Holy writ? Like according to the, when I say the, the Bible, I'm talking about the King's James version. Yeah. But if you flip open the title page to the King's James version, it will say 4,000 BC is when the fall of Adam was mm-hmm. 4,000 BC. That means if you do the math, we're 6,020 years since the fall of Adam. Yeah. Right. So not too long before that, the universe was created. <laughs> Mm, you know seven days i think right seven days and of course you'll have people say well that's not seven literal days because one day of god's you know time is a thousand years or a million years in human time you know you'll hear all those things come out but uh my point that i was making was if this if if holy writ was written and it and it was written for man to you know, to guide their choices, and it was actually God's word, okay? Well, two things have to come to mind. First of all, it was written 4,000 BC. That would be the Bronze Age. Mm -hmm. That would be a time when there was literally 98% of the people floating on the planet could not read. We didn't have science. We didn't have math. I mean, we didn't have, you know, the many parts of the world didn't even have written language at that time. You know, we just didn't have the advances of technology that helps us today, right? And so I had to, I started reading the scriptures with that. Mm. If, if this was God's word to his people, well, then I'm going to read the scripture without the assistance of Google, without the phone a friend, you know, without cataloging, without any of that, without looking at the topic, without footnotes, none of that. Because all that stuff, footnotes and topical guides and all that, that's interpretation of man. And if I'm going to take this, because God expected an illiterate people in an insignificant part of the world, you know, to read this and understand it without the assistance of any of that. So that's what I'm going to do. And I would probably challenge anybody on the other side of this mic, just do it as as a mental exercise, because that's when God brought it into the world. You know, If, if you are to believe that this was God's word, okay? That's when he brought it in, 4,000 B.C. Go look, at, go look at what our world was like 4,000 B.C. Those people that received these scrolls, they didn't, think the, they didn't think the world was any bigger than 500 square miles. You know? They, they, they couldn't even get past the next mountain peak. They had no idea it was on the other side of the world. So that's kind of the lens that I started, uh, you know, to read Scripture with. And that's what led me to just pretty much say, no, no, thank you. You know, I, I've, I've got one question that I want to ask you to, to kind of wrap this up um, because you, you're, 
your podcast starts with some really interesting phrases about raising consciousness and not you say something about breaking the yoke of oppression of your mind something along those well i yeah there's a and unexamined biases and yeah there's a snippet from bob marley and bob marley's one of the greatest teachers he's he's bob marley's actually probably the most underrated philosopher in all of the world yeah i believe that yeah the in the in the beginning of my podcast um, there's a little snippet that's not Bob Marley singing. It's actually me. It's, yeah. uh, and, and, and it's, uh, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. It's a great, great song. So I, I wanted to ask you, what does that mean to you? And, 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 re- and really raising your consciousness, what's the end, what's the end game? What, what, what does, what does it look like once you've raised consciousness as far as it will go? Okay. I actually had a chance to prepare for this. All right. right? And I'm glad, (laughs) I'm glad you asked that question because prior to you, prior to this, um, our, our interview, I really have not taken much time to really sit down and think about it. Now that I have the best way that I can explain it is by drawing our attention to uh, Thomas Jefferson. Okay. Thomas Jefferson in 1787. Um, I, I've called it to memory. I may botch a couple words, but you'll get the gist of it. But in 1787, Thomas Jefferson said this, fix reason firmly into her seat and call into her tribunal every fact and every opinion. Question with boldness the existence of a God, because if there be one, he will more approve the homage of reason than that of blindfolded faith. It's one of my favorite quotes I've ever, one of the best pieces of literature I've ever you know, read. That's a consciousness raiser. That's coming from our forefathers, one of our forefathers. He's saying, look, man, question everything. Don't be afraid. Question everything. Bring reason and fix her into her seat, right? And then bring everything that you can possibly muster, bring every fact and every opinion and, 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 you know, and call into question what you think, you know, yeah. And then he even said it, even God question him too, because if he does exist, he'll like you for doing that more than the guy that's just like, ah, I just followed in the line. I had no idea what you were saying. Right. But someone told me that all I had to do was say, I believe that's me. I believe. I'm sorry, but I, I think an intelligence who has created your mind to be intelligent would probably be more proud of the person that said, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, God. I really didn't think you were real. And it's because there were more evidence against you than there was for you. You know, and um, I, I exercised your brain that you gave me. And when I looked at things and I, and, and I closely examined the things that were available to me at the time, I made the decision that based on the evidence that I saw using my brain that you gave me, I decided to just explore elsewhere. So, right. And, and, and let's just suppose, let's suppose, because there's a lot of people out there saying, Lou, you're playing with fire, man. <laughs> Right, like you're playing with fire, man. You're poking the bear. You're tempting God. First of all, I don't think so because I'd have to be fearful of that if I believe it. So that's number one. But number two, 
let's just say then that Pascal's wager, you know, comes into play. And Pascal said, look, you know, if there is a God, great, you're saved. If there isn't a God, kind of like what Jordan Peterson was saying, I'm going to act as if there is a God, because if there is one, I'll be in good, you know, I'm in good position. But if there isn't one, I'll burn in hell if I don't act as if there is one, right? Well, let's just say I go with my reasoning and I happen to see God at the end of the day and I die and here he is. He's right there. He actually is real, okay? First of all, I will say that, what I just said, and then I will probably say something like this. It is a shame that a good brain that you created is about to go to waste and burn in a fiery furnace forever because you created me knowing that this was going to happen in the first place, which means all the people that I love and care about, my wife, my children, maybe my parents, or anybody else who swore allegiance to you blindly, they'll get to sit next to you on the right hand of you in your glory forever. And they're supposed to be happy and here's the part I need you to explain to me. Will it make you happy to see me, a person who tried to raise his kids in a good way, a person who paid his taxes, a person who tried to figure out life, a person who just changed his mind about you? But absent of that, I did everything I possibly could to be a good contributor to society. Will it make you and the rest of my fellow human beings happy? to watch me burn in hell forever. And if that does, well, let me take my medicine. You know? I mean, that's just that's just my, the way my mind is thinking. I mean, sure. if that's if that's what eternal bliss and happiness is like, because that's what the Mormon faith teaches, by the way. And if there's somebody out there that's listening to this and wants to challenge me on that, come on my show and we'll talk about it. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about it. You know, not to sling mud but just help me understand where I'm missing. Help me understand the doctrine that I didn't understand. Yeah. Okay. But that's, that's what it teaches. It literally teaches that, that those who will be in the right hand of God in exalted glory, they will live in forever happiness. While the person who is an apostate like myself will burn forever and live in eternal torment. And part of the happiness is up here. And again, this is a Mormon doctrine they will be able to watch the people that was not as valiant suffer. That's happiness. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. that is sadistic, you yeah, know? Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's where I'm at. And I hope, I hope your listeners will, you know, understand that to some degree. And, and even if they don't, I hope they'll at least be compelled to listen to some of the shows in the future. Yeah. What is the, what, what if there's a line in, we thank the God for a prophet that kind of has that sadistic um, sentiment in it that um, that those who reject this glad message shall surely be smitten at last. Yeah. And almost like, yay. You know, I was like, what? Like when I started seeing those little threads of things that are in there. I, yeah. I mean, oh my gosh. That's actually the first sadistic. time I've even, that's the first time I've even uh, considered that, but you're right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my oh, yeah. gosh. There's a, there's a lot of that stuff in there. Yeah. Oh. yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, sure. Okay, um, so so one last question then. You've read Sapiens. Have you read Homo Deus? No, that's that's next on my list. I've okay. I've actually got it on my uh, wish list on audiobook on my yeah. uh, on my app. So so 
the question that I asked you about like raising consciousness and how far does it go? I, I, to me, I've started thinking about consciousness in terms of, of evolution and, mm -hmm. and like, instead of really just focusing on homo sapiens as being the apex of life, just like all of life and all yeah. of consciousness and all of awareness. And that evolution seems to me, it, it seems like it's a trajectory of raising awareness and raising consciousness. And you go in and you read homo sapiens where, Yuval Harari starts um, speculating on what the uh, species that takes over from Homo sapiens is going to be like with this super, fusion of, yeah, of you know artificial intelligence yep. and and stuff. It's that's really really mind blowing. It is, and to think what would what would raising consciousness be when you're not so myopically centered on Homo sapiens? You know, like you talk about reason. Like that was a great quote from Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. but it's also very homo sapien centric you're right that that like why if there is a god right <laughs> what why would god uh privilege the reasoning capacity of one of his creations yeah. over any others right. um and what else is out there what what what, what there? other forms of life are out there you know what other forms of consciousness are out there what is the end game of raising consciousness um for us as individuals in the span of our own lifetime what would consciousness look like in the span of a species? What would consciousness look like in just the span of life? Those are questions that um, I find really interesting. Yeah, no, it's it, it's amazing. I mean, and our our whole our whole awareness of consciousness will change when we become immortal, and that's one of the things that uh, was talked about in that book that we are on the cusp of. Um, you and I may be lucky enough to live in that age where we will know what it means to be amortal, meaning we're not, we're not immortal, meaning we will die, mm. but it will be by virtue of some accident. But we will be at a point in our life where we won't die because of disease. We won't die because of sickness. And part of that has to do with the work that, you know, that uh, Francis Collins has done mm. um, yeah. with uh, genetic editing now and with the eradication of these, um, you know, these genetic disorders, things like that. Yeah. We're on the cusp of literally living forever and, and reversing the age process because the age process is actually a sickness. It's not a, yeah, it's not a condition. It's a sickness. Although evolution will continue. Well, of evolution. And, and so like whatever, what, whatever, like whatever we were 4.5 billion years ago in our evolution history, what will we be 4.5 billion years from now is, and, and, and how much of that will play out uh, as a result of technology fusing with intelligent? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting well, question. I think, I think as, as this just personally here, I mean, yeah. I think it's totally reasonable. It's totally reasonable. This is going to sound totally Trekkie and sci-fi and you know, all that, but yeah, totally reasonable that we could evolve into beings that no longer need hands and feet. Yeah. I, I truly believe that. Yeah. What, why would we need our hands and feet anymore? I mean, there, were, there was a point, I mean, if you really want to trace it back, where we were single-cell organisms, where we were tapeworms. Yeah. You know? And before the Cambrian period, 50 million years ago, we were not, we were invertebrates, you know? Yeah. We just kinda, we, we still are in a way. Yeah, with, we still are. With yeah. 30, 30 trillion cells in our bodies are yeah. each these individual living cells. Yeah, exactly. Cooperating with each other to create... Yeah. who and what we are it's an amazing thing it, and that's Incredible. what i'm saying i mean our our human our the human condition is an absolutely 
amazing thing. Yeah. Amazing thing. And I and I think that there will be a time. It's totally plausible. It's totally plausible that we will, especially if we're immortal and we've eradicated disease and eradicated, you know, sickness and all these things that could that could kill a human being. Why would we even need <laughs> why would we even need hands and feet anymore? Because we could, we could bring into existence things with our minds. We could. Yeah. yeah. You know, and um in, in fact, that's that's probably what a lot of people who have had near-death experiences, not probably, I've read a lot of near-death experience books too. Um, yeah. And those people all claim, and that's one of the things that is pretty much consistent throughout all these books is when they ex- describe how you communicate in the afterlife. Yeah. And they all say you, it's telepathic. You, yeah. You don't even use language. There is no language. Yeah. There's no verbal language. You just think it and it's there. Mm. right so exciting times man exciting yeah. times cool well <laughs> thanks for coming on lou and uh yeah i'd be i'd be happy to come on your show and yeah when i when i publish my book you can talk to me about bathing with god yeah let's do it so when, can, when did you challenge me publishing on yours oh it'll be in a couple of weeks in a couple of weeks it, it'll be by the end of august okay yeah, that's and, my goal and we'll can get to sleep the first week of september I think about the implications of diving in too deep And possibly the complications Hi, this is Hillary, Matt Ryan, Carol Dashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Night after night, my heartbeat shows